So I think that probably uh, many of you are here today for one of two reasons. One reason may be that you want to change. There's something going on that you don't want to be going on anymore. There's something that's true of you that you don't want to be true of you anymore. You want it to change. Is that true of anyone? I think it's also possible that many of you are here because you want to grow more deeply into the changes that God has already begun. I mean, you're seeing signs of life. You're seeing things that you didn't know you would see, and you're glad about it. But it's not enough, is it? It's that you want to grow more deeply in the things you've already seen. Anybody? Yeah, I thought so. Well, that's really good news because change is what Jesus Christ does. Change is what Jesus Christ does. Now, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about sitting in the same seat and singing the same song and going through the same motions. That's religion. I'm talking about a dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. That's what I'm talking about. And Jesus Christ, the dynamic power and the person of Jesus Christ alive in us, he's all about change and bringing about a perfection in us day by day by day. And that's not what religion does. Religion, I'm talking about empty religion, and it doesn't matter what the religion is, you can fill in any blank you want, but I'm talking about put any name on the sign that you want, and I'm saying religion is as empty as it can be, and one religion is about as good or bad as the other, if it's just religion, if it doesn't deliver you into the presence of the experience of God. And religion has two intentions. One is to control us. Religion depends on developing some sense of control so that you're answerable to someone or some system. And the other thing religion wants to do in our life is to maintain the status quo. It's, it's critical that religion gets you to a point and then holds you there, right? Holds you in that point. Now that's what religion does. By comparison, Jesus Christ has two intentions. One is to control you. You need to know that Jesus Christ means to control every aspect of your life. Jesus Christ doesn't just want to come and whisper in your ear. God does not want to be your co-pilot. He wants the wheel. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will find it. And then he said, and what good is it if a man should gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? Jesus Christ means to be the priority of your life against which every other decision is made. He means to control you. But by contrast to religion, Jesus Christ does not mean to come into your life to get you to a point and maintain a status quo. Jesus Christ means to come into your life and set you free to become a dangerous vessel of the love and power of God in the world. A dangerous vessel. Jesus Christ did not come to teach you manners. 
Jesus Christ came to make you an offense to religion. Jesus Christ came to set you free in his love and power to make you dangerous. I'm so disappointed in so much of the American church, the men's ministry of American church, which seems to be the goal of which is to teach men manners. That somehow the men's ministry has succeeded if the guys don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. You might as well know that I do all of those things. And I'm most proud of my girl. Jesus Christ did not come to make us nice. He came to make us loving. But he also came to make us dangerous. And that requires change, doesn't it? Because we're creatures of status quo. We're creatures of there, I've arrived. Jesus Christ has come to change us. And that is something that never stops in our lives. He's always changing us into something better. It never stops. Whether you are 18 or 88, you are on the same change curve with God. It never stops. Let me blow your mind. So some of you are looking over your shoulder and you say, God has brought about a lot of change in my lifetime, yes? You turned out to be not the person you were scheduled to be. God has done a good thing, yes? Raise your hand if that's true. Okay. So you look over your shoulder and go, no, there's been a lot of change in my life. Now listen, because God is infinite, then the possibilities for change are infinite, correct? So it doesn't matter whether you're doing it for eight days or 80 years. You are no closer to the end than when you began. Because God always changes us again and again and again and again. The Bible says you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. There's always more plan. We're not done. And I've read this Bible thing. I've read it from Genesis to Concordance. I've read this thing from Genesis to Weights and Measures. Never been sure why there's a table of weights and measures in the back of this thing. I don't care. I don't care what a shekel is. I don't care. But I've read this Bible from cover to cover many times, and I'm here to say that God means to change us all and that we're never done. And so... For this series of messages that I've been bringing for the last number of weeks called Changed, it's been my heart to tell you not only that God wants to change you, but that he wants to do the changes. He wants to make a critical change in the nature of yourself, in the hard drive, in the things that cause you to be the person that you are. He wants to make the changes. Because you, like me, you've noticed that You can envision a better self, and you can try to be a better self, but I think you, like me, have noticed that we're so limited in our capacity to truly change ourselves, aren't we? The Bible says we, catch this, it's a little graphic, but the Bible says we keep going back to our own vomit. It's more graphic, it talks about a dog returning to its own vomit. I'll let you do the picture. And we see that we're so limited to actually bring about these changes in ourselves. And so good news is that God wants to do the fundamental changing in that core hard drive, that character of who you are. 
he wants to make the changes. And the other thing we've noticed in this series is that, is that God has something on board everybody that he can already use to bring about the change. And so like for Abraham, it was his obedience. That God said, Abraham, you're here. I need you to go there. I know you've never been there before. I need you to stop what you're doing right now and go here. And he obeyed. And God used that obedience, that raw, blind obedience to catalyze the change in Abraham's life, causing him to become a different person. The next one was Joseph of the Old Testament, coat of many colors, that Joseph, who in the midst of horrendously difficult circumstances was always able to find the goodness of God in a situation. Didn't matter what was going on. He said, in here somewhere, God is being good because God is good, so everything he does can only be good. Listen, every decision of God is good. I'm very sad about one of his decisions in taking our brother A. Stephen to be with him. I'm very sad with you. But I know it's good because God can only be good. It's the only thing he knows how to do. And so that was Joseph. And he said, hey, what you guys meant for harm, God meant for good. And God used that embrace, consistent embrace of the goodness of God in every situation, no matter how horrendous or perilous it was, to catalyze the change. And then we looked at Esther, a great figure of the Old Testament, and she, she was w- willing to risk everything that she had. She was willing to risk everything, even her life, in order to move in to become the person that God had her be. And, and so risk is such an important aspect of this change that God wants to bring about in our life. Risk. And, and have you ever noticed, listen to me, some of you have noticed that how obedience and risk always come together. And God never calls us to obey something safe. You know, that, that the thing to which God calls us is always somewhere out on the limb, and the wind is always blowing on the limb. And so you tree huggers, I don't mean anything political by that, I just mean those of you guys who like the security of the trunk of the tree, and God is saying, but the fruit's out here. Obedience and risk always go together. Last week we looked at Peter, and Peter who just kept coming back. Coming back. He failed and he came back, and he failed and he came back, and he failed and he came back. And he came back, and my word for you was, listen, if your love for God is sincere, if your trust in Jesus is authentic, you can come back and come back and come back and come back. My caution was don't fool with that. Don't fool with that. Don't presume on the grace of God. Make sure you're not playing with fire. But if your love for Jesus is true, if your faith in Him is authentic, you can come back and come back and come back and come back, and there is no limit to the number of times that you get to come back. And that's how God brings about change in our lives. Well, today we want to look at another New Testament character. Her name is Mary Magdalene. I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon preached about Mary Magdalene. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Mark chapter 16. Let's start in verse 9. Mark chapter 16, and if you don't have a Bible, it's fine. We're going to read it, and you can listen. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Mark, if you're newer to the Bible, is one of the New Testament books. This was the second big portion of the Bible. There's Matthew and then Mark. So if you're flipping through there looking for that, and you're looking for the last piece of it, chapter 16 beginning in verse 9, and this is a, an account of when Jesus rose from the grave and started showing up in people's faces. So it's going to be good, right? 
Verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. So the first person Jesus chose to reveal himself to as the resurrected Lord was this woman. This woman named Mary, Mary Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And uh, there's a little expression of her life that at some point in her life, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. You find that in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, that Jesus cast out seven demons. So when we first encounter Mary, she's a woman with seven demons. And her last mention in the Bible is the woman to whom Jesus first chose to reveal himself as the resurrected Lord. That's change, yeah? That's a good change. So we're going to get something from this. But let's read on. Let's put it in context. So Jesus showed up to her, and she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. Would you? Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And your question is mine. Why did he show up? Was he just messing with people in different forms? Here's my answer. I don't know. You're going to be like me. When you get to heaven, you're going to have a big red spot on your forehead. Because you're going to see and you're going to go, Oh, I don't know. They didn't believe him either. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Could it be any more clear than that? Beloved, we have to believe on the Lord Jesus. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus. We have to have Jesus in our heart, not in a religious way. I don't care about your religion. In an authentic way where Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus, is alive in your life. We must. It says whoever believes in him in this way, releases faith in him, has a faith relationship with him, will be saved. Whoever doesn't, won't. It's clear. And then these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. What does that say? You know, there's some people who say, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Man, I don't know which Jesus they're walking with. And there's some say that he just meant for the apostles, but, but he says, look, he said, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe, church? You have faith in this? Well, then these are the signs that are meant to accompany. You'll drive out demons. You'll speak in new tongues. You'll pick up snakes. Hate snakes. They'll pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. Obviously, some have abused this in ridiculous ways. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. This is what Jesus means to do through us. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Boy, there's so much we could do there, but I just want you to focus in on this Mary Magdalene character. I mean, who was she? What do we know? Some people say, was she the same Mary of like Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus? Was she that one? Some people say, was she the same Mary who, you know, anointed Jesus with perfume and then washed Jesus' feet with her hair? Remember that, Mary? 
Some people want to say for whatever reason, because there's no literature to back it up, you know, was she the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? It's like, why would you even think that? And we could ask these questions. And sometimes they want to make this Mary Magdalene into a prostitute. And the reality is, the only thing that we know about here was Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Why would we want to make her into a prostitute? Because they try to connect her with the woman who put perfume on Jesus and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And you see what's happening? You see what's happening? You see what the devil's doing? This woman who did such a beautiful thing to Jesus that indeed was sensual, but not sexual. She did an intimate thing to Jesus that had no sexuality attached to it whatsoever. It was just sensually loving toward Jesus and we have so perverted our understanding of what intimacy even means, we say, well, she must have been a hooker. She must have been a prostitute. And you see what the devil's doing with our very concept of intimacy in our minds? In our minds, we automatically connect intimacy with sexuality. And what we do when we, when we embrace that, that intimacy and sexuality are the same thing, when we embrace that, what we do is we cut ourselves off from the power of fellowship relationship that God means for us to have. And, we, and, and when we do that, we rob ourselves of the ability to have brother-to-brother intimacy, relationship, heart-to-heart, even brother-to-sister intimacy. And there is nothing impure about that. There is nothing sexual about that. But it is very intimate. And when we do that, when we get tricked into not going there, then we also get tricked into a skewed understanding of what it means to have intimacy with God. And, and God wants, wants us to have intimacy. And, and some, of you, some of you have been victims of this, where you cannot separate intimacy from sexuality so that you can't sing a song like, I am loved by the Father. You don't need, that doesn't, it doesn't even happen. You sing the words when nothing is there. Some of us can't sing that stuff without coming to tears because of the reality of intimacy with God. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? We know only three things. One, that she was at the cross. Three out of the four Gospels place her at the cross of Jesus. She was there when he died. Second, she was the first person to whom Jesus appeared in the resurrected form. Third, At some point, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That's all we know. Good news, you ready? For the purposes of God's word today and his Holy Spirit moving among us, that's all we need to know. All we need to know is that she started as a seven-time demon-possessed woman and ended up at the resurrection of Jesus. That's a big change. What happened? What happened was that she embraced the work of Jesus Christ in her life and his power to set her free from the strongholds of Satan. That's what she did. That's what happened. And that is an element of change that I propose to you today. That if we want to change, do you want to change? Some of you need to get set free from the strongholds of Satan. This was a woman out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. We don't know what they were. And again, people want to make a sexual thing out of it. There is no reason to know. There is no literature. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us what those demons were. Demons. What are they and what do they have to do with us? What are demons? Demons are these wicked, malevolent spirits under the command of Satan meant to destroy you. Demons. The Bible tells us that demons are in every way fallen angels. 
The Bible tells us when we look at Isaiah and then hook it up with the book of Revelation, when we hook these things together and understand it from a larger perspective, the Bible tells us that there was a rebellion in heaven and that one archangel, one very powerful angel, decided that he was going to take it upon himself to usurp the authority of God and make himself like God. Now, angels are created beings. Angels are not infinite and eternal the way God is. Only God is that. And so God put the rebellion down, the Bible says, that, that cast this angel out of heaven and that when the tail of this foul thing went out, it took a third of the angels with him. A full third were actually likely an act of rebellion with him. And so what we have is we have one-third of all the heavenly beings created by God, which are ministering, service, uh, ministering spirits sent to serve the people of God. Now we're serving Satan. And we are co- this is all pre-humanity. This is all pre-human. This happened. And so when we come on the scene, we are, co- we are, we are created into a cosmic struggle between evil and God, between darkness and light. And we are, we are created into this cosmic struggle. And these foul, malevolent spirits, which are real things, are meant to destroy us, not just slow us down. The Bible says that the devil is, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. He wants to take us out. And he has a crew of a third of the angels that are now committed to evil. You know, over the last particularly few years, Karen and I have seen so much more of this than we ever saw before in the first 30 years of our ministry. We'd see it every now and then, but it seems like more recently we've just seen stuff in this evil spirit realm that we just never even thought possible. It's so wicked. It's so foul. It's so evil. I mean... My hatred for the devil couldn't be any higher because of what we've seen these things do. And we've seen things, and we've been involved in some deliverance ministry over the last shorter time. There are things that, there are things that we have seen that we feel like we can only really talk to each other about. We haven't shared it with anybody. It's that wicked. It's that foul. And to share, talk about it would only bring glory to the devil. And one of the things that has really ticked us off, and I don't even want to say ticked because I'm not a very well-mannered person. One of the things that's really got us up is seeing these evil spirits active in the lives of children. There are no lines. There are no rules by which the devil operates. And one child in particular that we were privileged to be used in deliverance ministry for, I mean, when you see this and when, you, when the Spirit shows you what's going on inside of them and you ask them what's in your mind right now and they tell you exactly the picture of what the Spirit has just revealed to you and you, you exercise authority over them in the name of Jesus and you say, and what are they doing now? And that child says, they're hiding. And the Lord gives you faith, and you go, not on my watch. In the name of Jesus, come out. And they come out. And you see now more than a year later, the behavior of that child has so substantially changed that you just give glory to God that he sets everybody free. 
in the name of Jesus. That we can break it. But these foul things, you know, you think, well, would a demon attack me? Of course. Are you committed to the things of the kingdom of God? Who else would he attack? You see, the, the devil and his minions are a finite reality. They're not infinite like God. And so, strategically, the devil is obviously going to command the demonic to attack those who are walking in the, in the light to try to discourage you. You say, can a Christian be demon-possessed? I think the whole possession word is such a weird word to use, but I, 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 I don't even use it in the way that it's said in the Bible. I don't think we understand it the same way. Can Christians be demonized, demon-attacked? Absolutely. Who else would be? Do I have anything to fear? No and yes. If you are walking in Jesus today, if you are walking in faith, and if you are wearing the armor of God, you have nothing to fear. Because these things flee at the name of Jesus. These things are cowards in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus ever showed up in the Gospels, what did they do? Oh, son of man, what do you have to do with us? And he handled them a thousand at a time. This is what Jesus does. So if you're walking in Jesus, and if you're, putting, if you're serious about wearing the armor of God, you don't have anything to fear. They fear you. But if you're living as a casual, nominal Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I go to the vineyard, or I go to the Baptist church, or I go to whatever. If you're living casually, and you know, yeah, every now and then I get a little of this and a little of that, and you're not serious about putting on the armor of God, of course you're being attacked by the demonic. They're not going to, they can't mess with people who are living in Jesus and living under the armor. But for the casual person who says, yeah, you know, it's part of my life, it's, it's no big deal. It's like saying, shoot here. You know, when it's convenient, I'll do it. When it's not, I won't. When it doesn't require sacrifice, I'll do it. Of course. How do I get rid of them? You ask Jesus to come and fight the fight. You surrender your life to Jesus. You say no more nominal Christianity. I don't even entity anything. I don't even want to be associated with Christianity. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be any entity. I want to be a believer. I want to be a disciple of Jesus, right? I'm not a vineyard Christian. I'm just a Christian who happens to be in the vineyard, yes? Come on. And you say, that's what I want. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to take up my cross and follow him. And Lord, I want, I'm getting serious about putting this armor on. And I want to walk in the spiritual reality of your protection and your power. In the name of Jesus, they run. Remember these foul things in my hotel room in India? And I could hear their little footsteps. And I rolled over in my bed and I said, Jesus. And they went, Phew. And some of you are going, Tom, that's pretty weird. Hey, listen. That's the scratch on the scratch on the scratch of the weird things I could tell you. These things are real. They hate you. And apart from Jesus, they have power. And this woman, this Mary Magdalene, was one out of whom Jesus drove seven of them. Imagine her passion for Jesus. 
to be set free from seven demons. Imagine. I wouldn't be surprised if she did pour perfume on his head and wash his feet with her hair. It wouldn't surprise me at all, even if she wasn't the one written in there. This is the lesson. You need to get set free from the bondage of Satan wherever he's got hold. Some people say, I can't change, or why can't I change? They ask the question, why can't I change? I'm listening to you, I want to change. Why can't I change? Four quick answers. Number one, you can. It's a lie of the devil that says you can't. You say, no, I'm so deep in my addiction, I'm so deep in myself, I'm so... That's the lie of the devil. That's, you know, the Bible says that the devil is the father of lies. You can change. I'm too old to change, really. What Bible are you reading? Moses started when he was 80? Holds Abraham when he had his first kid? You, you don't have Bible to back up your excuse. You can. But one reason people resist change is because you may actually not want to change. You may say, yeah, I want to, but you may actually not want to change. There's an odd kind of security that comes in, even a reprehensible behavior that says, yeah, but I, but I know that. I can control that. And it's subconscious. It's on such a low level that it's hard to even bring up to your radar. Some of you say, I don't ever want to do that about myself. But some of you cannot imagine your life without that. And so there's a, there's a resistance to change. I think a third reason people resist change is because you have not yet discovered how to ask God to deal with the root issue behind your behavior. Everybody does things for a reason. Nobody wakes up as a six-year-old and says, someday I'm going to be a cocaine addict. Nobody does that. Nobody ever says, someday I'm going to be the hardest porn addict on the planet. Nobody does that. There's always a root cause for the things that we do. Maybe you haven't discovered a way to invite God into that part of yourself and that part of that deep core of who you are to invite healing. You know, there's a root cause behind every addiction. You know, you know what you're addicted to, really? You're addicted to a chemical in your brain called, called dopamine. It's a neurotransmitter. It makes you feel good. Remember the first time you smoked a cigarette? I do. You smoked a cigarette and went... But there was something kind of... Cool, your fingers felt a little tingly, you know, and you felt a little relaxed, you know. That's when the dopamine went, Phew. And so you kept pushing through that sore throat and the spitting on the sidewalk and all that, right? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, for one thing. And you just kept pushing through. And then you think, thought you had a relationship with a cigarette, but what you had a relationship with was the dopamine that's released in your brain that says, that feels good. But there was a root cause for that. And it can apply to anything you can't get free of. Let's talk about gossip. Let's say, I, can't, I just can't stop being critical. I can't stop talking. I want to, but I can't. Why? What happened? Because sometime at some point, something happened to you. And you use saying something critical about somebody else as a way to make yourself feel good. It could have been an emotional trauma visited on you. And you said something about somebody else. And that released dopamine in your brain. And you went, oh, that makes me feel better. And now, you can't stop. Why? Because you, you're addicted to gossip? No, you're addicted to dopamine in your brain. What has to happen? You have to ask God to come back to that place where whatever that thing, that, that behavior that you want to change happened, would you come back to that place, please, and visit me and bring healing and deliver me from that? And God has visited me in many different ways in my life. 
and shown me things about my childhood, just in the context of he and me. And he's brought healing. And he's brought change as a result of that. And my behaviors have changed. And some of you need to know just how to invite God to come in. Some of you are victims of trauma, of sexual trauma. Some of you are vi- victims of, of emotional embarrassment. Some of you, it could be something as simple as in the third grade, you were just overwhelmingly embarrassed by something that happened. And the devil just came in and said, I'll just camp right here. We're just going to make this our own little hell. And you're still living it. You need to invite God to come in and reveal to you what that was and how he could heal you and bless you. Because God knows, you see. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit, even the deep things of God, the Bible says. So he can reveal this to you. And the Holy Spirit can come flooding in and bring healing. You say, why can't I change? I have one more answer. You can. You can. You absolutely can. It's the lie of the devil that says, you're done. You're finished. Hang on. Just walk it out. That's a lie. You know, I prayed about how to, where do you go with a message like this, Lord, when you tell people that maybe the demons are active in their life? And just from our experience, Karen and I talked about this, and from our experience when we get wound up in deliverance ministry, I mean, it takes, it could easily take an hour with a person. And, you know, here you are talking in front of hundreds of people at a time and saying, you know, maybe you got demons. What do you think? So I asked God, what, what can we do? And here's what I heard back from the Holy Spirit. It seemed like he was saying, if you invite people who want to feel stirred by this forward, I will reveal to them. I will reveal to them. I'll be generous to reveal to them some of these spots where the devil had an opportunity to come in and set up shop. And in revealing it to them, I'll come and bring healing. God has to do that. So I'm saying to you guys, if, you, if you're stirred, if you, and, and not everybody in the room is stirred, it's okay. But if you're stirred as a person who's going, man, there's something about what you're saying that resonates inside of me. I can't control myself in certain ways. Is it possible that I'm just acting out from that point of wounding? And I'd like to have that revealed. If you're stirred and would like to just be a part of a prayer up here where God may reveal that to you and bring healing, then come. Do whatever you like when you get here. You may stand, you may sit, you may kneel. Whatever is in your heart to do, just do it. Just come. There's something I believe that God wants to do. That only he can do.